we're going to be in Numbers chapter 11. And um, thankfully I didn't do all of the overhead in red because that looks terrible. Can't even see it. But uh, all the important stuff is in white, so we will get there. Up until this point in the story of Numbers, everything has been good. God has lived among His people. God has given clear instructions. God has provided for them. He has prepared them for the trip uh, to Canaan. He has pronounced His blessing upon them. He has promised to live among them in order to bless them. And not only has God been good, but also the people have been good. They have listened to God. They have responded to His instructions. They have set up camp according to His instruction. They have given gifts to God. They have cleansed themselves. They celebrated the Passover and the unclean who could not sought for a way to celebrate the Passover as well. And so you have this great relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. But here, in chapter 11, the conflict of the book of Numbers is generated. For the first time since the golden calf, Moses records the rebellion of the people of Israel. The conflict leads to a question. How is God going to respond to the rebellion of Israel? The rebellion in in chapter 11 here is the first recorded rebellion in Numbers, but it certainly won't be the last. So the rest of the story tells us how God responds to Israel's persistent rebellion. And in a word, the way that God responds to His people's rebellion is mercy. While Israel is complaining about their water and their food and their enemies and having to wander in the wilderness and about the law of Moses, God is working to fulfill His promises and to remain faithful to to them. And, And God has every right to just wipe out every single one of the Israelites, to exterminate them as a people group, but He does not because of His covenant with them and because God is faithful. He has made a promise to them. And even in spite of their discontentment and their rebellion against Him, God is working on their behalf to do good. Let's look at the text together. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 15. This is the Word of God. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones and beat it in the mortar and boil it and in the pot and uh, it would boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing infant, to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. God responds to our complaint by reminding us reminding us of His provision, His power, and His faithfulness. God responds to our complaint by reminding us of His provision and His power and His faithfulness. We see the complaint of the people starts in verses 1-3. through three. They are discontent about some kind of adversity that comes on them. Moses doesn't say what kind of adversity... The word adversity in the Hebrew in the Hebrew literally means evil or misery. It's used in Numbers chapter 13 for when the spies were sent to Canaan, remember, and they find out if the land was good or this word, evil. So there's some kind of adversity that comes on them. You see that at the beginning of verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity. That's the same word as evil in chapter 13. It's used in chapter 14 to describe Israel as an evil congregation. So apparently, Israel was complaining about their circumstances in general. That they had been given a miserable lot. That God had given them a miserable life. This will be seen in their second expression in verses 4-9 through when they wished that they were back in Egypt. And yet, even in their complaining, God heard them. And God responded with anger and judgment. He sent a fire to burn some of the outskirts of the camp, verse 1 tells us. And like in Judges, when God's wrath was displayed, the people cried out to God for help. It's when people experience adversity, when they finally cry out to God, when they're at the end of their rope, And God responds with mercy. Notice verse 2. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. So it's as if Moses is a kind of mediator between them and God. And Moses prays on their behalf, and notice what happens at the end of verse 2. The fire died out. So here we see God respond with mercy. And so they name this place so that it will be a constant reminder for Israel of what God had done. They name it the place of burning, Taberah. But they did not learn their lesson. Notice what happens in verse 4. A discontentment about a lack of provision. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? The identity of these complainers is, is there at the beginning of verse 4. They're called a rabble or a mob. Some kind of a mob formed. They were discontent about their lack of food. The nature of their complaint is that specifically it wasn't that they lacked food, right? Moses is going to go on to tell us that they're eating manna every day. 
but it's that they lacked meat. And they remembered how good it was in Egypt. Verse 5, we remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. We had such a good life back then. Right? We, we had all these different kinds of vegetables. We had these, these great kinds of meat. And, and now? Look at verse 6. Now our appetite is gone. And there's nothing to look at except this manna. It disgusts them. You know, discontentment is blind, isn't it? Because it fails to see the larger mercies of God. They failed to see the value of what they already had. And what did they have? In the present. They had this manna. They talk about it like it's disgusting and that they don't want it anymore. They're they're done with it. But Moses, I think, shows us in verses 7 through 9 that this actually was a good thing. First, he shows us the value of manna is that to Israel it was free. Right? Look, look at verse 9. When the dew fell in the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. So they're talking about, oh, we had all this free meat and free vegetables back in Egypt. But they forgot something. It wasn't free. Right? They, they, were, they were slave laborers in Egypt. And Moses is saying, listen, you have this free food. You don't have to drive to the nearest town and spend some of your money. You don't have to barter for this food. You don't have to hunt for it. You simply go outside and it's all over the grass. Secondly, the manna manna was valuable because it was diverse. That's what I think Moses is trying to point out to us in verses 7 and 8. The manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones. So there's one way to prepare it. They could beat it in the mortar. There's another way. They could boil it in a pot. And they could make cakes with it. And so what Moses is telling us is that it's, it's diverse. It's not that you just prepare it one day. You know, if you picked your favorite meal or even just an average meal and had to eat it every day, you'd probably get sick of it too. But, they, but the point is this can be prepared in multiple ways. Thirdly, the manna was valuable because it was guaranteed. Right? Whenever the dew fell on the camp at night, that's, verse 9, that's when the, the manna would be there. So six days a week, it was guaranteed. It was as sure as the sun would rise. It was always on time. They never had to wonder, hmm, I wonder what we're going to have for food today. I wonder if we're going to be able to have enough to make it. It was guaranteed. It was free. It was diverse. It was guaranteed. And then fourthly, it was enough. It was enough. No one had to go hungry. No one ever had to wonder, you know, I've got these kids at home. How am I going to feed their starving mouths? It was enough. God said, you, you grab as much as you need for your family, but only grab enough for one day, except for on, the, on the Friday. Then you would grab enough for Friday and Saturday. Because there would be no manna on Saturday. The abundance and regularity of manna was a symbol of God's goodness and provision, but they saw it as a sign of evil. Where, where's the beef, so to speak, right? 
They saw it as a sign of evil and misery, a poor, miserable lot that they had. And here's what they're saying to God through Moses. We would rather have meat and vegetables and be under the oppression of Egypt than to have freedom living for God and this disgusting food. You see, they're they're missing out on one key detail of what was going on in Egypt. They failed to mention all the harsh labor that they had. And this is the nature of discontentment. That we focus on what God is not doing. Right? We focus on what God has failed to do in our view. We focus on the things that we take for granted that, that we take for granted, we focus on those things. They fail to be grateful for what God is doing. They, they ignored His powerful deliverance and His kindness to them. As a result, we're living in discontentment over their adversity, verses 1-3, through three, and then over their food, verses 4-9. through nine. And so Moses takes this complaint to the Lord. Moses responds by, I think, sin here, blaming God. Notice what he says in verse 11. Why have you been so hard on me? Why have you, God, burdened me with these people? Verse 12, I didn't create these people. I didn't come up with the idea to take care of these little babies. I wasn't the one that's going to be like a nursing mother. That was you, God. You made that covenant with us. And you told me that I was going to be the one that led them. And then verse 13, I don't have meat to feed them. How could I possibly have enough meat? I have no response to them. Verse 14, I can't carry these people alone. And verse 15, I'm ready to throw in the towel. If this pattern is going to continue and this is going to expose my wretchedness, do you see that in verse 15? Then I would rather die. So just let me die now, God. I don't want to see this. I don't want to see my own wretchedness as the pressure of life pushes in on me and the sin from my heart comes out. I don't want to see it. I can't handle these people. Moses here is feeling the weight of leading probably two million discontent people who have everything that they need, but not everything that they want. And Moses is like, I cannot do this alone. And God is going to respond to both Israel and Moses, but He does so in reverse order. So we have in the text the complaint of Israel times two and the complaint of Moses. God's going to respond to Moses' complaint first and then to Israel. So let's take a look at that in verses 16 through 30. God responds to the, responds to the complaint of Moses. And the first thing that God does is He relieves the burdens of Moses. He, he relieves the burden of the leader. Now, in verse 1, God immediately responded to the complaint of the people with anger. But when Moses says, with the second complaint, I can't do this, and that this was all your idea, God doesn't respond with anger. Instead, He responds with mercy. He essentially says, Moses, you know which word I caught in your complaint? Alone. Remember what he said? I cannot do this 
alone. And God said, that caught my ear. You know what? There's some truth to that, Moses. Now, what Moses did was not right. His, his uh, complaint and blaming of God is certainly not without sin. But God said, you know what? There is some truth to what you have to say. You cannot do this alone. And so here's what I'm going to do for you, Moses. Gather up 70 of the elders. I'm going to put my spirit on them. They're going to help you. Now, why doesn't God respond with judgment on Moses? And, and the text doesn't say, but, but there seems to be a contrast between the people and how they complained and Moses and how he complained. Again, the content of both were wrong. But, but the means of them were actually, or the motivation behind them seemed to be in contrast. That is, that, that the people, in their complaint, they formed a mob and complained against their leader. Moses didn't go commiserate with other people and go, you know, this God that we have, he's terrible, isn't he? I mean, can you, can you believe the kind of food that we're eating? Or, for Moses' case, can you believe the kind of people I have to lead? He didn't do that. Where did he go? He went to God with his complaint, didn't he? Again, the, the manner in which he spoke to God was wrong. His blaming of God was wrong. But the, the motivation behind it was right. So let me put it this way. Misinformed, but reliant prayer to God is better than misinformed, but independent bitterness. Okay, so here's Moses. He's misinformed, definitely. And, and who's at, to blame here? God, this is you. You're the one who gave me these people. He was definitely misinformed and sinful in that. But he relied on God through prayer, didn't he? That's better than, it's not the best situation, but it's better than misinformed and independent bitterness. We, we allow this resentment to build up and turn into some bitterness against God. How could you do this to us? Send us back to Egypt. Or maybe another way to say it is, it's better that I take my anxiety to God than that, that I allow my anxiety to overwhelm me. Right? It's, it's better for me to right, um, cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. Give thanks to God. Take your anxiety to God. We hold on to it. We don't talk to God. It's as if we're, we're ashamed or we're opposed to God. Say, I'll take care of my worries myself. So Moses' prayer, again, while misinformed and, and sinful in the content, was directed at the right place. And his prayer reminds me of the Psalms when when their enemies are near, it's not that they're blaming God, and, and again, I think Moses is here, but, but in the Psalms, the, the psalmists are not blaming God. They're just saying, God, my enemy's near. What are you going to do for me? It seems like you're far away. Can you come near to me? Or the prayer of Habakkuk when Babylon is, is set up to be the instrument of God's judgment on Judah. Habakkuk says, God, how could this be possible? You're too pure to even approve any kind of evil, and yet Babylon is here going to attack us or judge us. God responds, by relieving the burdens of his leader. 
And the first burden that he relieves is by granting Moses 70 men. Here's God's solution to the problem. This burden that you're carrying, the whole weight of the people and all of their anxieties, I'm going to spread it out. So grab these 70 men and they're going to be sharing with you in this burden. Now, these 70 men are probably the same from Exodus chapter 18 who had already shared in the legal administration, that is, the judging. Remember, he had these long lines of people coming to him and he, couldn't just ha- he just couldn't handle it. So God brought in 70 men and they helped um, take care of the lesser judicial issues and the, the greater ones would come to Moses. But here, these seven men would, would have put on them, according to verses 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is being taken from Moses and being put on each of them. That's what verse 17 says. Then I will come down and speak with you and I will take of the Holy Spirit who is upon you and I will put it upon them. So it's not like Moses is losing his salvation or something and now he's saving, God's saving all these other 70 men. That's not the idea here. It's the same idea of the Holy Spirit leaving King Saul and going on King David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Okay, So, what is that talking about? It's not talking about salvation. It's actually talking about the theocratic anointing. That is, God had one theocratic ruler, generally speaking, who would rule over his people. The God-centered ruler. right? And, and that ruler would have the abilities that were given to him by the Holy Spirit so that he could accomplish the task that God had given to him. So even wicked, evil, godless, unbelieving King Saul had the Holy Spirit on him in that way. He was not a believer. He did not lose his salvation in 1 Samuel 16 when the Holy Spirit left him. When David prayed in Psalm 51, do not let your Holy Spirit be removed from me. He's not saying, don't let me lose my salvation. He's saying, God, I've sinned against you with this adultery and murder. Please don't take away your anointing from me as king and pass it on to someone else. Allow me to remain as king. That's what he was saying. He was asking for forgiveness for a sin. So that's what's going on here. Moses is God's theocratic ruler, has been Moses. Now it's the 70 elders. Who is it after this? Who's after Moses? The next book of the Bible after Deuteronomy is Joshua, right? And then, So the Holy Spirit comes on Joshua. And then the judges, remember? And the Holy Spirit mightily came on Samson and, 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 uh, and all these other... Uh, judges as well. And then, of course, each of these theocratic kings also had the Holy Spirit put on him. So I think that's what's going on here with the Holy Spirit coming on them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're all believers, uh, although they very likely are. So, they send, God sends the Holy Spirit on them, and then in verses 26 through 30, we have this this strange uh, case where two men are prophesying, and Joshua finds out about it, and he says, what's going on with this, Moses? Um, verse 27. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. So here comes a, some kind of a messenger, finds out that there are two people are prophesying in the camp, and comes and tells Moses. And Joshua hears of it. He's probably one of his trusted advisors. And Joshua says, Moses, stop them. Doesn't that sound like the disciples when there are some who are casting out demons and they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell them to stop. And what does Jesus say to them? No. If they are not against us, then they are for us. 
So don't prevent them from doing the work of God. And that's essentially what Moses says. Notice what he says there in verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. So praise God that He's speaking through people. I wish that everyone had the Holy Spirit on them so that they could prophesy like these two men. So don't refrain them from doing what is good for us. God not only relieves Moses of his burden, but He also shows that temporal desires do not ultimately satisfy. Verses 18-20. through 20. Temporal desires do not ultimately satisfy. Here in these verses, God essentially says, man shall not live by meat alone. Because food is not what ultimately satisfies us. It is not what we ultimately need. What we need is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? We need for God to be among us and to speak to us. But God gives the people the meat that they want even though they wanted it, we could say God could, God could have refused, right? He said, you know what? You want your meat? Too bad. You're not getting any meat. But instead he said, you know what? You're going to get your meat. And you're going to get a ton of it. Look at verse uh, 19. Uh, end of verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? See, God says, You think that's going to satisfy you? I'm going to give you more than you want. But you will see that it does not satisfy. And the reason... He was judging them with giving them what they wanted was because they had rejected Him. Look at the end of verse 20 again. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. I'm here. I am working among you. I am blessing you. Did did you see my visible presence in Egypt? When you were under the oppression of of the Pharaoh, was I there in, in the same sense that I am here, blessing you like I am now? And do you want to go back to that? Here we cannot miss the point. Verse 20. To be like Israel, to complain about our adversity, to complain about our lack of provision is equivalent to rejecting God. God says, here's why you wanted the meat. Because you rejected me. God shows that, that temporal desires do not ultimately satisfy. I would say that this is a measure of God's mercy. But then thirdly, God shows His power and His faithfulness. In verses 21 to 23, He shows His power and His faithfulness. Moses said, the people, verse 21, the people among whom I am, whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? To be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? What's Moses? Who, who sounds like Moses in the New Testament? Right, The disciples. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Disciples come to Jesus and 
they say, Jesus, you might want to end this. It's going to wrap up this little uh, talk you got going on here because uh, they're getting hungry, they're a long way from home, and they need to get into the town to buy some food. And Jesus says what? You give them something to eat. I'm like, we, we could empty our entire purse, the, uh, all, wear the money, the money bag, and we wouldn't have enough to feed all these people. And that's essentially what Moses says. What, am I supposed to kill all the animals in the wilderness? Am I supposed to drain the sea of all its fish and feed these people? And God's response here, Jesus' response in the New Testament is the same. All right, verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? So he wants to show them his power. And then notice the second part. Now you, Moses, shall see whether my word will come true or not. He wants to show his faithfulness. His power and his faithfulness. Am I true to my word? Jesus essentially does the same thing when he takes the five loaves and the two fish and distributes them. He says, do you not know who you have in your midst? How can you ask where the meat's going to come from? Right? I, I am the Lord of all creation. Is my power limited? If I promised that they would eat meat and eat it for a month, verses 19 and 20, then trust me, it's going to happen. How quickly Moses and the people forgot the great works of God. It was only about 13 months earlier when God was performing great and powerful miracles among the people of Egypt and delivering them in a, uh, through the Red Sea. Here's the second response by God. He responds to the complaint of the people. Again, a lot of this is intermixed because God's responding to Moses about the people and He's also responding to Moses. But here, the, the response is through His giving of the meat. And the point of this meat is to, to remind them that this doesn't ultimately satisfy it. And God connects with the meat, not only a loathsome taste, right? It's just till you're coming out of your nose, but, but also that, that it, He sends a plague with it. Um, first, we need to see verse 31. I went forth a wind from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side all around the camp and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. So try to picture this. Two cubits deep, so three feet deep of quail. And how far outside the camp did it go? Look at the middle of the verse. A day's journey on this side, a day's journey on this side, and all around the camp. So you've got a radius of probably about 12 miles, three feet deep of quail. About one trillion quail, quails. So to put that in perspective, if the city of Royal Oak was leveled to the ground and filled up with a trillion quails, it would cover every square inch of Royal Oak to a height of 12 stories. Sounds like Moses just got done saying, where is this meat going to come from? And Moses is probably thinking after this, where is this meat going to go? How are we going to walk through this? We're going to have to walk on top of it. We're going to have so much. So that every person brought in 60 bushels. That's what verse 32 says. They gathered the quail and they must have been so excited not knowing that this was going to 
be loathsome to them by the end of the month. But he who gathered the least gathered ten homers at sixty bushels. So while they're reveling in their abundance of meat, thinking that their complaining actually worked, hey, we complained, God came through. Well, verse 34, God sent a plague. Uh, verse 33, the Lord, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place is called Kibroth Hatava, the, the, the place of greediness or the grave of greediness. Lots of people died there because of their greed. And notice that's connected to verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, right? They, they had enough, but they wanted more than enough, didn't they? They wanted their wants fulfilled. God saying, this will be the place that you remember that you did this. Let me uh, just uh, leave you with a few application here. Number one, we must appreciate the abundant, abundant provision of God. We must appreciate the abundant provision of God. God abundantly provides protection and food and leaders, as we'll see next week. And yet we are quick to complain. We are quick to be filled with resentment and bitterness against God. And we even follow the example of Israel by wishing that we had our former life without God and the freedoms and the pleasures of our past. We wish we had it as good as we had it before. We would rather have the restraints that we had with our former life than the restraints that we have with our life in God. And, and, and our problem is that we are discontent. We fail to see all the abundant provision that God is presently giving us. We fail to remember the oppression that we once had. And so for us to grumble against God is to commit the sin of unbelief. That we fail to trust that God is on our side and that He is working for our good. Sometimes our grumbling comes from genuine resentment and bitterness like with Israel. Other times, I think it's like with Moses, just a feeling of being overwhelmed. But either way, it's a sin of unbelief. And for Israel, they needed to be harshly rebuked. But Moses needed a mild rebuke, didn't he? He needed some help. But either way, we can be sure that no matter how God responds, He will do what is best for His people. Because ultimately, He sees what we need. He knows what we need even before we ask Him. It was not true that God had failed them. It was not true that God had abandoned them. God did not leave them or give them a miserable existence. But, but, but the reality was that they failed to appreciate the good life that they had. They failed to trust God. I mean, we should not have to be told to be thankful to God, but the fact is that we need reminders of that, don't we? Because we, by nature, are ungrateful people. We are born ungrateful. We live our lives as ungrateful people. Even as Christians, we fall into that kind of sin. And frankly, billions of people will die and spend eternity with the spirit of ungratefulness. But the Scripture is constantly reminding us that we need to see the works and the goodness of God and give thanks to Him. So I, I don't know what kind of 
What kind of loss that you've experienced recently? I, I don't know what's missing in your life. But can I just encourage you to take stock and not, not, not spend all the time on what you need or what you think you want. But take stock on, on what God has given to you. What do you have? How has God been gracious to you? Don't commit the sin of rebellion like Israel. Instead, praise God for what He has given to you. Secondly, we must trust in God for His power and His faithfulness. When God offered a solution to the complaints of Israel and Moses, it was not well received. Moses couldn't conceive of gathering enough food for everyone. And God's response was, Is my power limited? You see what Moses missed? He missed the power of God. But God, but Moses also missed the faithfulness of God, didn't he? Because God went on to say in verse 23, See if my word comes true or not. I said I would provide. See if it comes true or not. And we often miss out on the greatness of God because we, have fail, we fail to appreciate the power and the faithfulness of God. We are like the disciples who were out on the boat with Jesus and they forgot to bring bread. They only had a few loaves. And these are small pieces of flat bread. It's enough for one person. And, and they're asking themselves, what are we going to do? We're out on the boat and we don't have enough food for all 13 of us. And you know what happened just a few days earlier? Jesus fed the 5,000 and Jesus fed the 4,000. The reason I know that happened earlier is because Jesus asked them about it. Hey guys, remember when that amazing thing happened and I fed 5,000 men? Most women and children. How many baskets were left over? Do you remember? Quiz time. Pop quiz. Oh, yeah, we do remember. It was 12. Oh, but what about the 4,000? Do you remember that time? Last week. How many baskets were left over that time? I know, Jesus, it was seven. Instead of Jesus saying, you morons, he asks them a question. He says, do you still not understand? Do you still not believe? You were there. You answered the questions rightly because you remembered. But have you understood its significance for your present need? Friends, we have seen God work in powerful ways in our lives. If you are a Christian, you have seen that. Because He's brought you out of darkness and into light. He's answered your prayers. Do you not have specific prayers that have been answered by God? And if we had a pop quiz right now, you could answer all those questions. And what God is saying to you in your present lack of provision and your present need is saying, do you still not understand? Do you still not believe? Is my power limited? Will I not accomplish all that I want through you? You see, our failure to see God's power and faithfulness is not a deficiency on God's part. It's not that you know what? God wasn't clear enough to me. 
or he, he failed to show up when he needed to. It's a deficiency of our faith. We don't see. Sometimes, like with Israel and Moses, it takes an overabundance. That is, that God gives us all that we want and more, and we are not satisfied. Or at other times, it takes a catastrophe, like a plague, to wake us up to God's great power and to the fact that we ought to be content with such things that we have. Because God is powerful and God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, the, the, the soberness of this moment is a reality because we see ourselves in Israel. And we're ashamed to admit we are not much different than they. We are not much different than the disciples who saw your great and mighty works and a few days later forgot about the significance of those works in relation to their present need. Lord, how many times have we rejected you? How many times have we raised our fist in your face figuratively speaking, and, and blamed our circumstances on you? How many times have we taken for granted the goodness that you have shown us? How many times have we turned one of our wants into a, an alleged need to make the claim that these things that we want are something that we actually need, Lord, when all that we need is you. We need your presence. We need your word. And we are ashamed to admit that we are like that too often. We are ashamed to admit that we are ungrateful. I think we know what's best for ourselves think we know what would be the best for our spiritual lives what would be best for our families Lord we, we think we know and in so doing we have become more independent than dependent on you Lord help us to take all of our anxieties and cast them at your feet knowing that you care for us thankful that you do Lord use this message to speak to us right now and throughout the week. Pray that we would be people who are content. That, that there is a, a contagiousness about our contentment in this church and the peculiarness about our contentment in a watching world who can't comprehend why we would not complain about our government or why we wouldn't complain about our circumstances or our loss health problems Lord may we shine as lights in the world so that others will see our good works and glorify you in heaven you deserve nothing less in Jesus name Amen